0: My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flack. Greetings and salutations listeners, and welcome to episode 214 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is February 16th, 2022, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about virtual reality. Now, before we take a step into virtual reality, I have to deal with real reality and load these show notes off of my trusty Commodore 64. So while those notes are loading in, that'll give us a few minutes to chat during this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Now around Christmas time, a little bit after Christmas, I mentioned that I spent my Patreon money on a new mixing board and a new microphone. And I have to say those things are working out really well. That is the good news. It has greatly reduced the ambient room noise and echo that I was getting in my previous recording. So I'm really happy with that. Uh, The bad news is that I've introduced a lot of noise (laughs) right now (laughs) in my computer room because I had a drive fail in my RAID, in my RAID 5 partition that runs off of my server. So I am currently rebuilding my RAID, which may add just a little bit of background noise. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it or not, but if you hear the slight warm hum of hard drives as they sync parity data, Across a few spanned hard drives, that may be what you're hearing in the background. I am probably over cautious, more cautious than most people when it comes to backups, when it comes to protecting data. I have data that I never want to lose. I have data that I want to keep my entire life, my digital photos My writings, a lot of the stuff that I've created, I don't ever want to lose that stuff. And so I have a lot of that stored on a raid five. If you're not familiar with raid, you know, that is where you can stream data, stripe data, I suppose, across multiple volumes and there's different configurations. And if you've ever had the fortune or misfortune to pursue certain Microsoft certifications, you may know more about RAID than you want to know. That's kind of where I am. But with a a RAID 5 configurations, you can put all your data, you can combine a bunch of drives, but you still have a backup drive. That's the easiest way to explain it. That's a very non-technical way. And I could do an entire podcast about RAID configurations, but I don't think anybody would want to listen to that. But the good news is when you lose one hard drive you don't lose any data as long as you rebuild that drive in a timely or your your raid container in a timely fashion and so that's what I'm doing. But that data is also backed up to an external hard drive and it's also backed up to the cloud. So I do not want to lose that data. I also don't want to lose that data. Data? Data? I don't know. <laughs> I had to explain, my daughter saw something about Dan Quayle, saw his name the other day and I told her the story about where he had corrected a a school, a, a child in a classroom had spelled potato and Dan Quayle added an, an E on the end of it. And All my kids knew about Dan Quayle was that he invented the internet with tubes. <laughs> so I had to explain that. It's funny. Things that are in our lifetime are foreign to our kids. Uh, I, I've had that a few times. I have a uh, Nirvana t-shirt. I was just telling this story the other day. I have a Nirvana t-shirt and uh, my, my son said, man, that shirt is so cool. Where'd you get that shirt? And I said, a Nirvana concert. <laughs> so it doesn't seem that long ago. To me, but in some ways it was uh, a lifetime ago, it seems like. So In uh, as I've been watching the Olympics and watching the Winter Olympics, every single uh, competition, every single event, there are some events that are more – I mean, the least – exciting event to me is cross-country skiing. It's just people skiing in a straight line, not really a straight line. They go over hills and, and things like that, but that's the one I have the hardest time getting into, but I've been watching all the freestyle skiing and the snowboarding and the Ice skating. I just love the competition. I talked about this a little bit on Sprite Castle, but I love that spirit of competition. I feel like I'm more uh, patriotic and more excited about international competition than when I was younger. Maybe that's just something that comes with age. I don't know. But uh, so I, I greatly enjoy watching the Olympics. And uh both the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics, I never beforehand it never seems like I'm gonna get excited about it. And then when it comes, I'm very excited. <laughs> I've discovered that with my cable company, you can stream from most channels. Like I can stream from USA Networks and NBC and I can watch the Olympics on my computer in the other room. And so I've been doing more of that than I probably should have staying up too late, getting up too early, watching the Olympics, but boy, is it exciting. Uh, even the things that seem like you're not going to get addicted to, like I say, every year I say, I'm not going to get into curling, but boy, do I get into curling. It's fascinating. All of it is very interesting. And the it seems like a lot of my stories lately start off as the old man on the porch type of story, like I remember like that kind of thing. It seems like a lot of my stories are, are moving in that direction and I don't want to be that guy, but I'm that guy. I'm becoming that guy. I heard something on the radio. My wife had turned on, uh, some radio station and, and the first thing that came out of my mouth was if, if. I had heard this. It sounded like somebody was like strangling a radio underwater. (laughs) It did not sound like music to me at all. And the minute I said it, I could hear my parents telling me the same thing about my music growing up. So I I don't know. I just feel like I'm getting older. But I'll tell you what makes me feel old is watching the Olympics and having them say, you know, these competitors – are 19 or 18 or 15. The ice skaters that are 15 years old or even worse are the ones that are in their 20s that are talking about aging out like, well, how how can they possibly compete in their mid-20s? And I think, yeah, yeah, give it about 20 more years. Wait till you wake up. Wait till you're like me and you have to go to the doctor and explain that something hurts because you heard it while you were sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, that that's when you're old. So anyway, good times watching the Olympics. We just had Valentine's day. I don't know if Valentine's day is a big day for you. It is a little bit less of a big deal for me every year. When I was a kid, we used to build Valentine's day boxes in school. And then my kids did that for a while, but they aged out of it. It seemed pretty quickly, but I really, really enjoyed doing that with my kids. Uh, Mason and I uh, I know one year we made a, a Nintendo Wii, just a, a white a box covered in white paper and he drew all the details on it and we made the little slit where the DVDs went in the front and that's where you put the Valentines in and he made some Wii motes and stuff and we actually one year used a balloon and did paper mache and made an angry bird, a big red angry bird. That was fun. And man, I just uh, had such a good time making Valentine's Day. I don't think I made that many Valentine's Day boxes with Morgan because uh, my daughter, her Valentine's Day boxes were shoe boxes covered in uh, colored paper and then with sparkly sparkles just glued <laughs> You know, it hearts like very traditional Valentine's Day boxes. That's what she wanted to do. But um, but um Mason and I, we really made some creative stuff. So that was a lot of fun. And I, I wish uh that, you know, unfortunately you grow out of it and then someday you have kids and then your kids grow out of it. And then that was like your second chance. So I guess in, uh, you know. Hopefully in uh, 10, 15 years, something like that, maybe I'll have grandkids and then I'll be doing it with them and we'll be – that's your your third chance to get it right to make Valentine's Day boxes. So that's uh, – you know, Valentine's Day is a little bit of candy going out and spending a little alone time with your significant other. That's about all we did and uh, it was good. I also have on my list of things, you know, I just, in loading time, I always have little notes of things I've been up to, and I may have mentioned this on a stream or on another podcast, I lose track, but I have been taking a sign language class, I think I might have mentioned that on the last You Don't Know Flack, it's online, and I'm actually behind, I've kind of gotten behind on my lessons, they release a couple of lessons each week, and it's all self Paced and so my pace has not kept up with the class's pace, but I need to get back into that. I don't know why I wanted to take sign language or learn sign language and what I've figured out maybe I I don't know, maybe I, I should have thought about this in the beginning, but I got to the point where I can spell things and I could do numbers and I know some basic words, but when I practice things Like I watch television and I think, oh, well, let's try to do this commercial with sign language. And I realize I don't know a single word. I don't know how to do a single sign of any words that they're saying. I only know how to tell people that I drive a blue car, which is not helpful because I have a black pickup. So (laughs) the, the things I'm learning aren't very applicable right now, but I would like to continue On with the sign language, I don't know. I just have this weird feeling like it's going to come in handy someday, but I don't know when that day is going to be. We've been having fun over on the Patreon channel. Lots of blog posts, lots of interesting stuff going on over there. So if you want to find out more about supporting my shows via Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara for more details All of my patrons get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly Randall rob videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. Uh, If you don't feel like signing up for Patreon, but you want to support the show, the best thing you could do is share links to my shows on social media. That really helps get the word out. I appreciate that. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodork. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405 486 YDKF. And look at that. What good timing. The minute I finish that sentence, my notes have loaded up. Now, the, normally I load them directly from my Commodore 64, but this is a virtual. Commodore 64 running in virtual reality. There's a lot of onion layers to these notes this week. So took a little extra minute to load up, but here they are. So let's get started talking about this week's topic, virtual reality. I have always been fascinated by movie special effects. Ever since I was a young child, I wanted to know how special effects were made in movies. I learned all about blue screens and stop motion and matte paintings. I was just fascinated by the way that our brains could be tricked, that our minds could be made to see something that doesn't exist in reality. And if you're into movie special effects, you've probably heard the following story. I know I've I've heard and read this story a lot of times. And when I started talking about this topic, this is the first story that came to mind. And it was about this old black and white film that was shot in the early 1900s, it was actually the late 1800s, about a train uh, traveling towards the movie screen. And the story that I've always heard is that this was such a terrifying visual experience to audiences that people got up and ran out of the theater because they thought they were about to be hit by a train. I can't tell you how many times I've read this story and unfortunately, after doing a little bit of research for this episode, it turns out that that story is probably not true. Uh, the short that people are referring to is called Train at La Ciotat," I believe that's how you say it. It's French, uh, which means I probably just butchered it, but it was uh, filmed in 1896 and it was a 50 second, less than a minute, silent film by Auguste and Louis Lumiere. These were not actual movies. They thought of them as moving scenes or moving postcards. And their goal was to essentially record a moving scene and then go around, travel around and show these to audiences so that people could see what other parts of the world look like. The reports, we don't have, nobody is left alive that witnessed this live, but we do have news reports uh, from the time and nothing in those news reports mentioned people running out of the theaters, screaming that they thought they were going to get run over by a train. Now, this film Showed a train parked at a depot and it had people getting on and off a train and the train is kind of in the upper right-hand corner. And then eventually the train begins traveling towards the camera to the bottom left-hand corner. And the camera was set up next to the train. And so it's a, it's such a great idea. It's such a great visual that people were so terrified of this, that they got up and ran out of the theater as if people in the, late 1800s or early 1900s would have thought they were actually going to be hit by a train. Uh, I learned that the screens that they used to show this film on were about seven foot wide. Uh, And of course, the picture was black and white. It was a very grainy film. And again, there was no sound. (laughs) This is a silent film. So In retrospect, when you learn the facts, it seems very unlikely that anyone actually thought they were going to be hit by a train. But there's something about that story that has survived throughout the ages. And I don't think it's because we like to make fun of people. I don't think we're saying that these people were simple. I think what we're saying is that they were seeing something that they had never seen before and that their brains – just didn't know how to process it. And that by the end of this podcast, you'll find out that is something that I can relate to. Uh, it, it, it's a very, I think we've all seen examples in movies, especially when we were young of special effects that we knew somehow must be a special effect, but we just had no idea how they were done. Uh, I, tend to think of the first time I saw Superman, which was in the late seventies. And I was a little kid and I remember seeing Superman fly and I didn't know how they did that. Uh, And of course, all the things that we saw in star Wars, there were just so many different things, different special effects that it was just kind of mind blowing. But of course we grew up in that era of seeing special effects and knowing that special effects existed. So we just didn't know necessarily the details of, of how those things were done. Now in the 1950s, there was a product release called Cinerama. And that term is a combination of cinema and panorama or panorama. It might've been Cinerama. Uh, This came about at a time when movie theaters were starting to compete with televisions that were appearing at home. And they wanted to be able to present something to audiences, some sort of experience that you couldn't get necessarily in your house. And so what Cinerama was, was an almost think of it as the precursor to IMAX. That might be the best way to explain it. It involved setting up three screens that curved around a stage that gave, and this is a very specific number, 146 degrees of arc. They then used three 35 millimeter projectors and synced them up. So each of these three movie projectors were showing a different film and the films, the edge of each ones lined up on that arc. So you get essentially this one image that curves all the way around a huge stage and really gives this perception of you being in a location. The very first film that was released was called This is Cinerama or This is Cinerama. Uh, it was in 1952. They also pushed the fact that these films had stereophonic sound. So that was a big thing that you probably Well, definitely didn't get at home on your television. You didn't have stereo. Uh, The 1952 debut of this Cinerama made the front page of the New York Times. This was a big thing that happened. And a lot of movie moguls attended the premiere, but also a lot of the heads of the studios, like the head of NBC (laughs) attended, the head of CBS attended, because they wanted to find out what all this excitement was about. And it really does, uh, I've seen several of these films, and they do give you this wide, super, super widescreen experience. They built, I believe, four dedicated theaters just to show the Cinerama films. The first one was Cooper Theater, which was in Denver, Colorado. Uh, that theater was demolished in 1994 and turned into a Barnes and Noble. There was a second Cooper Theater in St. Louis Park. And that was demolished in 1992. All of these are gone, unfortunately. That one became a TGI Fridays. There was the Indian Hills Theater in Omaha, Nebraska, which was torn down in 2001. And the Kachina Cinerama in Scottsdale, Arizona, which became the Scottsdale Galleria Mall. They built that on top of that. Uh, But to get this experience now, not only did they, they have those dedicated theaters, but there were traveling theaters where they would go into theaters, set up this (laughs) crazy curved, uh, screen and, and configure their, their, uh, synced up movie projectors and show these films. It was like a, a dog and pony kind of show. Right. Um, So, what happened to this was it kind of evolved into other types of film. It kind of, the the direct descendant of this is Panavision and other types of widescreen films that could be shown in normal theater. So, you didn't have to have this, uh, customized curved screen. To see these um, now, I own a few of these films on Blu-ray. This is Cinerama, or the, I don't know if it's Cinerama, Cinerama. I don't know uh, the uh, Cinerama Holiday, and there's another one called the Seven Wonders of the World. You can find these on Amazon. They're the same price as a normal Blu-ray movie. When you watch them at home on your television, it kind of has a a bow tie aspect, I guess I would say the corners come in a little bit. So instead of what we're used to as um, maybe black bars on the left and right of a screen, if you're watching something that's a four, three ratio or, or possibly black bars on the top and bottom, this is kind of a bow tie shape where it comes in a little bit on the top and, and goes back in. A lot of these movies were gimmicky the very first scene in this is Cinerama after it starts off with this big dry explanation, it goes into a roller coaster and the cameras were set up on a roller coaster. And you do kind of get that sense of motion. Your, your mind is tricked because uh, it's such a big screen. It's such a big uh, uh, visual, you know, it fills your entire field of vision that you have this feeling like you're actually on a roller coaster. So that was kind of a gimmicky thing that was out for a while. Definitely not virtual reality, but it's that same kind of sense that we're, we're tricking your senses into feeling something or experiencing something that you're not really experiencing. Now, when I was a kid in 1982, my family and I went to the World's Fair. I was 10 years old. And the world's fair that year was held in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, someday I will do an entire episode about the world's fair, but because we made our plans so late in the summer, and when I say so late, this was still months before the world's fair, we could not get a hotel room. My dad says within an hour of Knoxville, Tennessee, and so we ended up getting a hotel in a small little area called Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And Pigeon Forge, my dad used to describe as the uh, a, a sideshow without a circus. <laughs> it was the type of place that had amusement parks and uh, wax museums and go-kart rides and all those crazy things uh, just without – any sort of main attraction. Of course, now Dollywood is uh, right outside Uh, pigeon forge and Gatlinburg are all kind of in this, this same little area. And our hotel was right next to this amusement park that was called magic world. And magic world was this crazy. (laughs) I could do (laughs) when I do the, uh, someday I will do an episode on world's fair and I will talk greatly about Magic World. Magic World was this nut-so crazy amusement park uh, that had, it was like kind of the knockoff version of an amusement park. <laughs> like everything was kind of homemade. There were statues of dinosaurs around. There was a, a guy in a wizard costume that wandered around and did magic tricks. There was a a magic carpet ride, which was like a dark ride kind of thing that you went through, just all kinds of really uh, strange things uh, there. Now, if you go by there, there's a a putt-putt magic worlds, unfortunately gone, but there's a, a putt-putt course on the same grounds. And some of those things are still there uh, that existed at that time. But one of the attractions was what was called the flying saucer theater. And it was literally looked like a, big giant flying saucer that you walked inside and there were big movie screens. I want to say surround like 180 degrees. I mean, this is the memories of a 10 year old, so I'm not positive, but that's, that's the way I remember it. it was just a wall of movie screens and everybody went in and you stood in the middle of this UFO and faced those movie screens and they projected a video Of, you know, the UFO quote unquote flying across the, uh, the mountains and across the, the local scenery. Now, I remember at the time my dad pointing out, and a lot of people mentioned this online, that if you look at the bottom right hand corner, you could see the shadow of a helicopter, So I think the helicopter might've had some, uh, assistance or the UFO might've had some assistance from a helicopter in filming the footage that they showed, but I remember standing in there and when this, when it seemed like the helicopter was turning left the whole crowd of 50 people would all lean to the left. I remember seeing people fall over. It would lean to the right, and people would lean all the way over. And my mom had to sit down because it gave her such a headache. She got uh, really dizzy by watching this video. So again, not really virtual reality, but that same type of thing of of tricking our eyes and tricking our brains into experiencing movement that's not actually happening. Boy, I have uh, such a, a a fun memory of that uh uh UFO of that flying saucer experience and I remember walking out and talking with my dad and just saying, you know, if there was only a way where you could control it. Like if you were inside that thing and you could control which way you were flying and control the video that you were seeing, I mean, then you'd have something, then you would really have something. So I didn't know what the future held, but I do remember, you know, making that wish, Uh, you know, just just wanting to have a little bit more control instead of just being a passive viewer of this footage. Now, virtual reality has existed uh, for a long time, this theory of being able to put our brains into another reality, control something other than our own bodies. I think around, well, definitely that that same year that we went to the world's fair was the same year, 1982 that Tron was released. Tron is kind of a virtual reality type movie because you have these characters that existed in the real world and then they go into a computer world but it's not the same exact idea that we, that it's not the same way that we think of virtual reality now. In fact, in the movie Tron, uh, the characters are actually, uh, digitized. They are disassembled and they are reassembled into the game. And, and then of course, in the world of Tron, they have some of the characters have an understanding that there are users on the outside of Tron. Of course, uh, uh, Tron himself communicates with his user through the IO tower. What a fun movie. Um, (laughs) But so it's not virtual reality in the same sense that we think of it. But there were parts of it that were that kind of were starting to get to this, this idea. I think about Flynn being in Flynn's arcade and him playing the tank game. And, uh, you know, then the camera going into the game and those, the characters that he's controlling on the outside are having to, you know, do his bidding on the inside, but it's still not virtual reality because it's not him inside the game. So not quite there, but we're starting to get some concepts, uh, of virtual reality. Now there was another movie. And I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I remember watching it on HBO when I was a little kid. It was called Brainstorm. Uh, I think Christopher Walken is in it. I'm not sure who else is in it. It's 1983, and it was about this machine that let you experience other people's reality. And so this is getting much closer to what we think of now as being virtual reality. And uh, if I remember right, I really – I should have watched this movie before this episode, but – before, well, what happens is someone dies using the machine and then other people use the machine and they get to experience what it was like for her to die, (laughs) which is a a weird concept, but it, it, you know, they don't have the visuals down yet the way that we think of virtual reality, but they have this, this concept and it's closer to virtual reality than, than Tron was right now. I was a early, early BBS user. I was calling BBSs starting in the early 1980s, 1982, 1983 on our Apple. And I remember in the mid 80s, all of these people started talking about two books, one more than the other, uh, Neuromancer everyone online started talking about neuromancer which was written by William Gibson in 1984 if you don't know neuromancer is the book where the term cyberspace was coined actually i believe uh, Gibson had mentioned it in one of his earlier works but uh, that that's where the public caught up with with the term was in neuromancer he also referred to cyberspace as the matrix this matrix of computers that existed. So a lot of his concepts about connecting to, you know, not just uh, the internet, but virtual reality are the same kind of, I mean, he was one of the, the, the father of it all, maybe the grandfather of it all. There was another book called snow crash, which was by Neil Stevenson uh, and snow crash is where the term metaverse is came from. So you have these science fiction authors that are starting to explore these ideas of virtual reality. And I mean, this is really close. Uh, Neuromancer, all these things about decking in uh, to cyberspace and moving around and doing things. This is really, you know, the foundation of virtual reality, the way that I think about it. Now, as a young kid, I did not read Neuromancer or uh, Snow Crash. I read them later, but I was exposed to Neuromancer through the computer game. I had it on the Commodore 64 and later played it on the Amiga. And the game is kind of related to the book. (laughs) It's not, not a hundred percent translation, but It's enough to give you this idea and to give you those terms and those concepts of of decking in. And, of course, back then, we thought about that uh, or imagined that as BBSs. Like we thought we are connected to cyberspace because we dial in with our modems and we are living these these online lives that are so different from our real lives. You know, uh, in the morning, I would get up and I would go to school and I would go to classes and I would – carry my little trapper keeper and, and ride the bus. And then when I came home, I would get online and I was some, I was Jack Flack and I was the guy, you know, handling business on BBSs and moving software around and, and playing games and making deals. And, and it was a, a a different life. It was a, a different existence. It was a person. I was a different person online than I was. Offline. I I always I think about the the scene from war games when Matthew Broderick is in the middle of one of the the game simulations with the Whopper and he's entailed in this war. He's gonna launch missiles and the Whopper's doing things and then uh you know David Lightman's mom says, Hey it's time for dinner and he turns it off and it that all goes away and that existence stops and all of a sudden he's the teenage David Lightman that has to, you know, go have dinner go down and, and um, take out the garbage and do those things. So it's two completely different lives. It was just a, a, a fun concept at the time. Now, we got a lot of hokey virtual reality kind of stuff. One of the things that always stuck out to me is the movie Weird Science, now, I know that they've done a lot of this in a lot of movies. They always have visual representations on computer screens that everybody that used computers was thinking, "What are they doing?" But I remember when Weird Science where they were trying to access more power so that they could build their virtual girlfriend Lisa, and they were their computer was going through three d tunnels. <laughs> And then when they would get to, you know, an area they couldn't access, the skull and crossbones popped up and and they would jump back from the screen. And I always thought that was so dumb. Uh, like, you know, that didn't happen. What we were calling BBS is if you got a busy signal, you didn't get a virtual representation of a tunnel and a skull and crossbones coming at you. Um, it just said, you know, busy, <laughs> which was um Not really a a flair. Most modem software did not have a flair for the dramatic, but, uh, you know, it was kind of, you know, in movies, they have to visualize things and, uh, you know, it's seen. So because the average person doesn't want to see a modem, (laughs) a terminal, just putting out text, they want to see, uh, something saying, uh, uh, uh. And say the magic word, right? You have to have that that visual perception of something that's going on. So but I always thought, boy, wouldn't that be fun if when you were trying to log in, that's how you logged into things, you would drive down virtual things, and if you got your password wrong, you'd get a skull and crossbones and things like that. So and kind of planted a lot of those seeds for what virtual reality might be like. Now for me, now I'm gonna <laughs> Say my disclaimer up front, I was not a huge fan of Star Trek. I was a Star Wars kid. I don't know why back in the day it was seen as people were either Star Wars fans or Star Trek fans. I have been recently watching, going through every episode of the original series of Star Trek. I'm about halfway through the first season. I think it's great. I love the show. I just wasn't exposed to it as much as a kid as I was, uh, to star Wars, but in the next generation, and this was, uh, while I was in mid middle school, this, this, uh, came out was the holodeck on star Trek and the holodeck was a room on, I'm going to say the enterprise. I think, I think they were still on the enterprise. <laughs> In Star Trek generation or the next generation, I don't know. Um, but it was this virtual room. I mean, it was a room that just had grids printed on the wall. But when you went in there, you could load up any place in the world, any place in the universe, and it would magically become that. And they used, I think they used electromagnets to create, uh, Tactile feedback so that if there was something to pick up there, the people that were in the holodeck felt like they were picking something up. Uh, there was a, the floor moved. So they walked around and they felt like they were moving in these virtual things. There was no telltale sign that they were not in reality. They could walk around on other planets. They could train or they're fighting. <laughs> they could do anything And the, and and entertainment, you know, they could, they could, uh, relive memories. They could do anything. And that to me is the ideal goal of virtual reality. I mean, that is the, you know, we saw all the other, the goofy stuff, the, (laughs) you know, the, the weird science stuff, the, uh, um, the UFO theater, you know, the, uh, even Tron, but seeing, the holodeck and Star Trek the Next Generation, to me, that is the epitome of virtual reality. Of being able to check into a virtual place to go anywhere you want, do anything you want. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. That's what it boils down to. That that's what we want, right? So I did a little research on the actual term "virtual reality." Now that term was first used in the mid nineteen eighties uh, by a man named Jaron Lanier. He was the founder of VPL Research, and he began to develop the first prototype of what we would call of virtual reality hardware. He was the guy that came up with the goggles and the gloves, and he said, "If you put these things on," he could create this experience that would allow you to experience what he called virtual reality. So uh, Jaron Lanier in the mid-1980s is where this comes from. Now, I have to mention a few other things uh, when it comes to virtual reality. Lawnmower Man. Uh, (laughs) By the way, if you're a reader, you should do yourself a, if you want a good chuckle, Go read Stephen King's short story The Lawnmower Man. Now I had read that uh, as a teenager. And when the movie came out, I thought, well, how is this going to be a movie? And other than the name, those two things have nothing in common. The short story, I, I don't I think it's a short story. It might be a I don't think it's long enough to be a novella. I think it's a short story. Of Lawnmower Man is about a guy who hires somebody to mow his lawn and it turns out to be a, a supernatural being and the guy kills him. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story, but it has nothing to do with virtual reality. It has nothing to do with anything that's in the Lawnmower Man movie. In fact, uh, I, I looked up Lawnmower Man the movie while I was doing research for this episode and found that Stephen King sued them to have his name taken off the lawnmower man, the movie, because it has nothing to do with his story. Uh, but the lawnmower man has, you know, Job, this character who's, who's slow witted and gains intelligence and gains power all through virtual reality. It's a really, really dumb movie. And there was a sequel that was even dumber, <laughs> but um that was kind of the nineties shift about virtual reality. Everything had to be super, Polygon, everything had to be, you know, just very nineties, um, Johnny Mnemonic, Keanu Reeves, first foray into virtual reality before the matrix, when he played Johnny Mnemonic and he, uh, Johnny Mnemonic now, I mean, there are parts of it that did not age well. The part where he has to consult a dolphin to hack his head, uh, while Ice T is dressed as a giant kangaroo or rat, whatever he was. I forget. Um, yeah, parts of that movie did not age well, but the idea that Johnny Mnemonic had given up parts of his brain so that he could smuggle data that was compressed and stored in his brain, like a human data smuggling thing. That's pretty interesting. So there are parts of Johnny Mnemonic that are pretty interesting. By the way, Johnny Mnemonic is, uh, uh, was a short story also written by William Gibson, the same guy that did Neuromancer, so a lot of the same authors were still dabbling in that kind of uh, virtual worlds of of uh, future tech things like that. But uh, so we had Johnny and Monica, and then I mentioned the Matrix. But really, where all this comes around, and I think since the Star Trek's holodeck, I think the most accurate depiction of virtual reality and Where we are and where we're going is in Ernest Klein's book, Ready Player One. Now, the book came out in 2011. I read the book. I thought it was really, really good. And then the movie came out in 2018, and I thought the movie was okay. The movie took a lot of licenses. If you've read the book, uh, even if you haven't read the book, there are so many copyrighted things mentioned I remember reading the book and thinking there's no way they could license all this for a movie and I was right. Uh, so they used the things that they could license. Um, you know, there was a big part of the book that dealt with uh, Prince and the album uh, Purple Rain, I think. And there was, uh, you know, just some uh, other things like that that I thought that if they make a book there's or a movie, there's no way they could do that. And, and I was right. They changed all that stuff. Uh, by the way, whenever I talk about Ready Player One, I always like to drop this fact. Um, If you Google the main character, Wade Watts, Wade Owen Watts, if you Google where is Wade Watts from, if you remember in the movie, he lived in a place called the Stacks, which was old mobile homes just stacked up all the way to the sky. And if you Google that and say, where were the Stacks, you will get the response, Cleveland, Ohio. But in the book, that's not true. In the book, and I cut and paste this little paragraph out of the book, uh, it says, That's right, Sorrento Bart. We know who you are, Wade Owen Watts, born August 12, 2024. Both parents deceased. And we also know where you are. You reside with your aunt in a trailer park located at 700 Portland Avenue in Oklahoma City. (laughs) Unit 56K to be exact. I don't know if 56k I kind of think that ha- that's a, a reference to 56k modems uh just kind of an in joke I always thought that might be uh um, uh you know a in uh, joke or a reference but uh but in the book he did not live in Cleveland, Ohio. He lived in Oklahoma City and specifically he lived at 700 North Portland. Uh if uh in fact he says it says on the novel it says the Portland Avenue stacks on the western outskirts of Oklahoma City. Uh, and um, anyway, I could take you right to where they are. <laughs> I know where 700 uh, Portland Avenue is. Uh, and I-40 that runs the main interstate that runs east to west through all of Oklahoma. Uh, Portland crosses there. In fact, the uh, if you ever get a package delivered from UPS... And, uh, in, in Oklahoma city and you miss their delivery and you have to go to their little delivery warehouse processing thing to pick up your package. It's basically at 700 North Portland. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, that's where the stacks were. When I drive by there on the interstate, I, every time there's a huge field on the other side and I look over there and I think, yep, that's where ready player one was, but, uh, not in the movie. They had to change it. Um, that's <laughs> a little side rant. Um, but. But the thing about Ready Player One is it is a whole movie about people. I mean, Wade is the main character, but him and all his friends and everybody in the world uh, and all of his friends all pretty much, you know, live in in uh, garbage and, and filth. Like they're all, uh, you know, they don't have money. They don't have all these things, but they're life takes place in the virtual reality world uh, they know that it's virtual and I think that's important as a reminder when you think about like Tron or some of these other uh you know even lawnmower man maybe uh, that people don't know that they're trapped in this virtual world that they the characters that are that are in the virtual world don't know that it's virtual but Ready Player One is a pretty realistic depiction of VR. These people know that they are decking in to virtual reality and that they can control their environment. I mean, they all have avatars. They control what they look like. They hang out virtually. I think that is an important part of virtual reality, that it becomes a social place. Even people that aren't physically Uh, located, close, can still virtualize. Um, So I think that Ready Player One really got a lot of things right. There's a a couple things I think that it misses the mark on. The one, to me, that's the most important, and and I'm going to discuss this in just a minute, but in Ready Player One, the metaverse if you want to call that the virtual reality world in which the whole movie takes place in halloween's world uh is owned by one corporation and there's actually the potential that that could happen right now and i we have to make sure that doesn't happen which all that changes the whole tone of the podcast doesn't it that i just went from talking about virtual reality to uh taking action hmm (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I'm getting worked up about something. Uh, In the early 90s, I went to the mall. Uh, Actually, I went to the Mall of America in uh, Minneapolis. I was on a work trip, and they had this thing set up in the middle of the mall. It said, try virtual reality, and it was this game called Dactyl Nightmare. Now, you can... Look that up on YouTube and it's dactyl like pterodactyl It's D-A-C-T-Y-L. I think it's dactyl, uh, dactyl nightmare. And it was a virtual reality game that essentially used the things that we're talking about. It used goggles, kind of a headset. It also used a hand grip that substituted for a pistol and it was a two player game. So two people would each battle each other in kind of what you would call a, you know, virtual version of laser tag. There were two people on this game field that had different levels. And, uh, of course it was very, very kind of eighties looking. The floor was checkerboard, black and white and, uh, all kinds of, you know, very sharp triangular shapes. um, but the the point of the game was to you know fight one another to shoot each other and uh, to avoid the pterodactyl. The pterodactyl would eventually show up and try to grab you if you missed uh, making so many shots. Uh, so that was a probably the first time that I saw anything related to virtual reality in person. Now I got to tell you that virtual reality was a far cry, not only from what we have now, but a a really far cry from the holodeck. (laughs) Like there's no way when you had this on that you did not know that you were in a virtual reality. Uh, The helmets had these big groups of cables coming out of the top of the helmets that connected you uh, to a computer that was running everything. So, um, It definitely wasn't hmm, what's the word I'm looking for. It it wasn't transparent uh, exposure to virtual reality, Uh, but it was immersive. You did have this helmet that covered your, your vision and you did have speakers. And so uh, you, you did get that feeling of uh, motion, you know, a feeling of vertigo, whatever you want to call it while you were playing. Uh, So, that was really the first time that I saw virtual reality that people could do. Now you couldn't own this. I think this thing probably cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars uh to build, uh, maybe more, but you could go to a place uh, and experience it. Now, I know that this isn't true virtual reality, but I got to throw this in. The next, the first, well, I would say the next time, but the first time that I felt like, uh, and I'm skipping over the uh, virtual boy, I'm not even going to talk about that. But the first time that I thought that you could get this at home was on the Nintendo Wii. Now I know the Nintendo Wii is not virtual reality in the sense that it feels like you're in another environment, but the first time I played Wii sports and I stood in my living room holding these Wiimotes and swinging them around and watching a character on the TV screen swing a tennis racket or a golf club or boxing gloves uh, was a very, very odd feeling experience. Now, uh, you know, a lot of Wii games later on just use the the controller as uh, almost like a laser pointer, like point to different things or shoot with a gun but those games that actually use the motion There, there was the uh was it red steel there was a an early title where you wielded a sword and i mean the first time i played a wii i thought i mean this is this is begging for a lightsaber i mean that that's what this thing was built to do and they did eventually uh have some star wars games where you got to control a lightsaber but i saw a Wii for the first time we went to the mall and they had uh and like a Uh, an expo on the floor, like maybe 20 Wiis uh, kiosks set up where you could step up and and play the games and stuff. And it was pretty mind blowing. It was definitely different than anything I had ever seen. And I don't know that I would put that together with the VR headset idea, but you could kind of see looking back that these things are slowly, approaching one another. You have the controls that are getting more mainstream, more affordable. You have those headsets and the processing power of computers that are coming closer and closer. Uh, And so that kind of leads us to what we have today. Now, what's happened with VR over the past 10 years has been pretty amazing. In 2012, was a Kickstarter for the Oculus Rift. And you may have heard of the Oculus, uh, but it was uh, kickstarted in 2012. They had to raise money to build these things. In 2014, two years later, Facebook bought Oculus for $2 billion. So <laughs> you could see in just a short period of time, how much value uh, that Facebook Zuckerberg and whoever, uh, saw the value in this, right? Uh, the, there have been multiple VR headsets, competing, uh, technologies. We've had some augmented reality, which is a little bit different than virtual reality, but we've kind of had all these things competing, different hardware competing with one another. Uh, Forbes, in 2019, declared it the year of VR. Uh, this is really when they began selling the the Oculus. They be, uh, they began selling all these. Uh, um, I'm kind of making up the details here, but it just seemed like like that was the year my nephew got a VR headset. Like before that, it was you know guys that were spending a thousand dollars, and then all of a sudden, like kids started getting them. People started getting these headsets to explore, to, um, learn more about. And, and so that's why, uh, Forbes made it, uh, the, the year of the VR. So I think part of that popularity also came from the film ready player one, which was released a year before that. Uh, and then in 2020, yeah, 2020, I should say they released the Oculus two, and that is where we are now uh the Oculus Quest 2 uh which I just purchased I just bought a Oculus Quest 2 a couple of weeks ago now the Oculus is the box when you get it has this little infinity logo and it has the word meta on it but as we know Meta is the renamed version of Facebook. So there's a part of me that doesn't like that. I don't, I mean, anybody can make the hardware. I'm okay with that. But I don't like the concept of the metaverse being owned by a single company. That's like a single company owning the internet. We can't have that uh, the way that the internet works, we can't have one person that owns it. Uh, it has to be a board. It has to be a group of people that have the best interest of the internet in mind and not, uh, you know, commercial value in, in investment, uh, in that technology. So, uh, so I don't, like I said, I don't mind that the hardware, uh, is made by meta, I'd have a little bit of a problem with the fact that you have to log into it with a Facebook account. You have to be registered on Facebook to use the Oculus Quest. So that's a little bit of a turnoff. I'm okay with it right now. But in the long term, I I don't expect that to be the norm uh, in the future. I have spent the last two or three weeks digging into apps. I'm not going to lie. Most of them are the free type of apps. They're so many virtual apps, uh, you could spend days. There is, uh, now my buddy, Guy Hutchison, he's the host of drunk on Disney. Uh, he does, uh, he used to do the adventure, the uh, just drew a blank, the adventure ACPN, the adventure club podcast, uh, guy. And I talk all the time and his son got an Oculus, which got me digging into and learning more about it. And then I ended up finding one uh, from another friend who had one that he was passing on. And so I purchased it from him. Uh, but so one of the things that guy told me about was that there is the YouTube VR, which are some of the videos are give you 180 degrees of view and some give you 360 degrees of view. Uh, a 360 degree view is hard to comprehend. It's hard to explain until you've done it. Obviously, I could tell you that you could put on this headset and you could turn your head all the way around, look up, down, left, right, uh, and the unit tracks your head movement exactly. So there's a one of the first videos I watched on YouTube VR is of a uh, a guy who's doing, oh, what do they call that? Like the ultralight airplanes, right? Or like not an airplane, but an ultralight. I think they're actually like chainsaw uh, motors. I don't even think they're like a go kart motor. I think they run off a chainsaw motor. Um, but it's, you know, a fan on the back and then a little structure and a big parachute overhead. And, and, uh, and basically this guy goes on a flight. And I immediately thought back to, the frontier city or not frontier city, the um, uh, magic city experience of being inside the UFO. But at that, I was just a guy standing in a room watching projectors, you know, in a room that happened to be round on this. And again, this is a YouTube video, so you can't control the motion. You can't steer. You can't tell the guy where to go, but you can look anywhere. You can stare down at the ground. You could stare at the guy's feet, which are below you. You could turn your head up to the sky and stare at this giant parachute. That's over your head. You can look left. You can look right. And it is seamless. It makes you feel like you are experiencing that same thing. I watched a video that was shot in a cockpit of a jet fighter plane. And when the video began, I turned around, I physically in my chair, turned around 180 degrees and saw the face of the man that was flying the plane. And I stared at his face. I just watched his face (laughs) for the the longest time. Uh, it, it was, it was very, uh, I don't want to say disconcerting, but that might be the right word. Um, it's just a, a strange experience to feel like you're in the presence of other people who don't see or react to you. Now there are a million free apps out there. There's even more, uh, pay apps. There's a movie theater that I experimented with. Uh, I don't understand how this tricks my brain but these tiny two little screens that sit in front of my face create the illusion that I'm sitting inside like an IMAX theater. I'm looking at the world's largest movie screen. You can configure all these things with a click of a button. I moved to a drive-in theater with another click. I was in someone's home movie or home theater in their home and you create an avatar and This particular app will hook up to, if you have a home media server, will let you stream your movies and watch them in this space. Now that might seem strange. Why wouldn't you just go to your living room? But I mean, the sound and the screen in this are almost better than the TV in my living room. And not only that, but there's also a button that allows you to share your theater with, I think, up to 15 people. And so I set up my room and I started playing some cartoons. And as I was sitting there, I saw something out of the corner of my eye and I looked and someone else was sitting there with me and I looked and it wasn't someone I knew. It was just a random avatar. It was a guy with spiky hair and (laughs) he was wearing 3d glasses and, and a Hawaiian shirt. And I looked and, and the, the Oculus comes with these little hand controllers that you they hold. And as I raised one, my virtual hand in the app raised and I, I waved at the guy and he turned his head and he waved at me. Uh, now you can push a button and talk, but neither one of us did. We just went back and, and we watched cartoons. It was a very, it was almost frightening in the sense of it would it would almost be like if you were watching television in your living room and looked and a stranger had appeared and that person wasn't there to harm you or necessarily talk to you they were just had showed up to watch tv with you <laughs> it was very very strange uh there is a jurassic park app and this was released i think to advertise the upcoming jurassic park movie that's why it's free and there are two scenarios and the first one has a big giant sleeping dinosaur in the middle of the woods. And as you're sitting there, slowly, the dinosaur begins to wake up. Now, again, this is 360 degrees of vision. You could turn around and look behind you. You can look up at the sky. You can look down at the ground. Uh, In fact, if you look kind of backwards at an angle, you'll see the Jurassic Park Jeep that you must have driven to this location and parked. Slowly, this gigantic four-legged, looks, appears to be a uh, herbivore, wakes up and he stands up and he's big. And then he notices you and he leans his head way in to check you out. And when he did, I leaned back in my chair and put my hands up in front of my face because it felt like that dinosaur was going to lick my face. And it wasn't until afterwards that I thought, now I see why that legend of the people who ran away from the train <laughs> has lived. It, that's why that story has survived for more than 100 years, because this tricked my brain. I know there's no dinosaurs. I know there's no dinosaurs in my room, and I know with this stupid headset on that I'm not out in a forest. And yet something about the way that this video, uh, tricked my brain made me lean away from this dinosaur and made me physically in my house, put my hands up to keep a dinosaur from touching my face. It was the strangest experience I think I've had, uh, through the VR. Now I've seen a couple other apps that are out there. There is a virtual arcade which is really interesting. Uh, You can walk around in this 80s arcade. Now, I've only seen videos of this. I haven't tried it myself. But if you uh, connect your Oculus to your computer, apparently you can play your own emulators and ROMs on this uh, virtual machine. Like, you could hook it to MAME. And so you could walk through a virtual arcade, go find the game that you want to play, and when you walk up to it, it changes in the name, and you would actually be playing that game. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, there's a, a few other apps that I've dabbled with. There's some uh, meditation type apps. And you'll notice one thing I haven't talked about are the games. There are 100,000 games. Any kind of game. There's racing games and shooting games and running games. There's a Call of Duty game. Uh, anything that you can imagine, of course, has been uh, ported to this device. Now, I took a break from all of this playing around with my new toy, with this new virtual reality, and I really sat down to think about what it is that this technology could be used for in the future. And I came up, I mean, I don't want to call this a manifesto. I don't really know what to call it, but it's just kind of my my list of uh, I wanted it to be 10 and I narrowed it down to 11. Uh, so I had a list of 11 things that to me, I think that we need to have, uh, to make this a, a not just an interesting, but a useful and long lasting technology, because I think there's a lot of amazing things we could do with VR, not just where we're at, but, but where it's going. And so, uh, so here's that list that I jotted down. Number one, uh, and, and I'm calling the metaverse, you know, this wherever you go. When you turn on your virtual headset and you, you deck in, wherever we go, that's the metaverse, right? Uh, number one, the metaverse cannot be owned by one company. I said that before. It can't be one commercial place. It has to be like the internet. It has to be a place where everyone can have representation. Uh, anybody can, can access things. Now that's not to say, um, you know, like if you want web hosting, you may have to pay for web hosting. Well, you may have to pay to have your own place in the metaverse. I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like, but, um, but number one, it can't just be owned by one company. It just won't work. Um, number two, when you check into the metaverse, You have to be globally online and available. So what I mean by that is when I check into this movie theater app, I could connect to other people that are also using that same app, but people that are playing a different game, I'm not seeing their notifications. So there has to be some sort of way where once you're in, once you're logged in, you are seen as online by all your friends kind of. I mean, if you think about like, Oh, like some sort of social media, like Facebook that says this person's online or, you know, maybe something like discord or Slack where once you're logged in, Hey, this person's there, something like that. I put a sub note on this one and said, it would be nice to have a segregation of friends uh, maybe putting them in groups. I think Google Plus, for all its faults, did an actual good job of this. Um, I don't necessarily want, you know, my work people and my f- online people and my family all mingling. I want to be able to keep those groups separate. So, um, you know, I, I think being able to manage that uh, is going to be important. Um, number three, I think access to the metaverse and basic services have to be free and universal. So again, uh, this is that, that concept, like I don't want a communications program that I can only talk to other people with that communications program. When you log in, I want to be able to talk to all of my friends. I want to be able to find people, uh, no matter where they are, uh, on the metaverse. I mean, once they're online, I just want to be able to, uh, reach people. And I think that it's going to be so important. Some of these things are going to be so important that we can't, uh, put prices on some of these services. Uh, I think it's going to be a huge educational tool. It has the the potential to be a huge educational tool, and it would be a shame for people to not be able to get that experience because they can't afford it. Uh, number four, I wrote all real-world functions must be ported to the metaverse. I've already had this experience multiple times where I put on the headset, I start doing something, and then my phone rings, and I have to take off the headset, and I have to answer my cell phone, or my email notification goes off, and I have to take the headset off. Uh, so once you get into this quote unquote metaverse, I, you have to be able to put all of your real life stuff in that area. You got to have access to your email. You got to have access to uh, your phone. You got to have access to your calendar. All that stuff has to be there and easily accessible. Otherwise, you're just flipping back and forth between this headset, uh, putting it on, taking it off, and, and that's really no good. Uh, Number five, I wrote the interface must be as good or better than real world interface. So, what I mean by that, the Oculus has a beta application that will allow you to type in the air on a virtual keyboard that works okay. But you also have these controllers that almost look like Star Trek phasers that you wave around and point and stuff. And, you know, when I logged in, they wanted me to type in my or my Facebook password. My Facebook password is 32 random characters, uh, capital, lower symbols, numbers, and I had to point at a virtual keyboard with this pointer, and it took me about 10 minutes to type my password in. That's no good. Uh, you have to be able, we're going to have to be able to do the things in the metaverse as easily as we do them in real life, whether that's a keyboard, uh, and mouse type setup, whether, I I don't know, I don't know what that looks like, but it has to be better than what it is now. Uh, number six, free education. Uh, this thing has a huge potential for teaching people how to build things, training people, uh, all sorts of education. Imagine if, uh, Wikipedia, instead of reading about the pyramids, that there was a virtual Wikipedia where when you clicked on that, you could go to the pyramids and walk around and a guy would explain things to you while you were there or, you know, King Tut or Mars or how engines worked or the right way to hook up a microphone (laughs) or how to rebuild a raid controller like, All of that stuff uh, is out there now on the Internet in text format, and we've seen a shift. Uh, My son did a lot of repairs on his uh, truck that he bought. He bought a a truck that needed a lot of fixing, and he did most of those things by watching YouTube tutorials. But imagine if you could put on a VR headset and – watch a guy change the oil on any car and zoom in and see where he's doing things or fly underneath the car and look at how things are put together. I just think there is a unlimited amount of potential in education that could be put into these devices. And I would love it if it were free, Uh, maybe a library type system. I, I don't really know I know there's it's not a great business model to put together dream things that I want and then give them away for free but if you're if you know how to do that let me know <laughs> uh, number seven we have to figure out the copyrights as they pertain to sharing things so here's my example if I invite you over to my house and I play the latest album that I bought that's perfectly fine but Think about if I go on Twitch and you show up on my Twitch channel and I play an album, I'm going to get a copyright strike. If I, I've i been getting copyright strikes on my podcast for including the 8-bit versions of songs at the end because YouTube says they're too close to the original song, which is crazy, but that, that has to be worked out. I want to invite you into my virtual space, and I want to listen to a record with you or watch a movie and not have to worry about the copyright police kicking in my virtual door. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if you have to prove ownership of owning that music. I mean, if we both show up and stream Spotify, is that okay? But if I play an MP3, is that not okay? I don't I don't know what that looks like, but that has to be worked out. We have to figure out a way where we can share art whether that's music or movies or stories whatever but be able to share that art in that same metaverse. Uh number 8 I wrote down uh, some coming up with some sort of uh, no code low code creation of sharing spaces. In other words um uh, you remember like when uh, not necessarily AOL but like MySpace where you could log into MySpace and you could set up your own little MySpace thing. Well, think of that for the metaverse where everybody gets their own little apartment and you can put whatever you want in it and you can share. Maybe you have a thing, you know, think about this, uh, how we had used to have answering machines. Now we have voicemail, but when people stop by and you're not there, well, maybe you could have a virtual space. I mean, people stop by your website, you're not there, but they still get data. They still get the information. So having you know, the equivalent of websites in the metaverse. You go to my place and you can read what I've done or see, you know, listen to the music I've made or or whatever that is. So, but I mean, the key to that again is the no code or low code. In other words, you shouldn't have to be able to build a, you know, code to be able to build this virtual space for people to visit. There has to be, uh, you know, some sort of plug and play. I always, I think of the the ultimate example of plug and play is if this than that. IFTTT. If you use that or don't use that, but it's a way to get use scripts that other people have written, code blocks, and and connect them. So if this happens, then take this action. If I get an email from a certain person, then flash my headlights. Uh, or or nah, headlights, not. But like my LED light bulbs, or something, you know, something like that. Or play an MP3 on my phone, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, but it's that that kind of idea where you can plug and play and build your own kind of thing. So it, it's kind of that idea of again MySpace, uh, but just just having a a visitable place that exists uh, where people could go when you're not online. Uh, number nine. This is a. I mean, kind of a no brainer, but we have to have non gimmicky 3D experiences. Right now, every, you know, the dinosaur thing is, oh, the dinosaur's in your face. Whoa. And hey, I'm on a roller coaster. Look at this. It's 3D. Whoa. It, everything's that uh, experience right now. And, and, th- and that's fun. And, and you're getting that experience because it's virtual reality and it's 3D. But at some point, I want a 3D thing that says, hey, now I'm, riding in a milk truck <laughs> or now I'm sitting on a side of a lake, uh, and experiencing, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be, you know, I, when I think of 3d movies, the early 3d movies, I always think of those three Stooges movies where Mo would poke shimp, uh, you know, do the eye poke and then they would put the camera and he would stick his fingers way towards the camera and go, whoa, <laughs> like that. Like it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Uh, and I put a sub thing on this boy, this would be a neat thing, but just having 3d cameras in public spaces. So maybe we don't have to meet in a virtual club that belongs in an app. Maybe I could say, Hey, let's meet, you know, at this park, uh, that exists in the real world. And you and I could both put on our headsets and meet at that real park. And it would be real time. It would, you'd see what's happening in the park right now. And just be able to see that virtually our avatars would be there. We'd be able to see each other and you'd see the dogs and the ducks and whatever else is going on in the park. So, uh, again, I got a lot of ideas that other people have to build infrastructures for, <laughs> uh, number 10. The next, to last one that I came up with is haptic feedback. Uh, the controllers that I have buzz and the headset has sound and I think the headset might buzz a little bit, but that's about it. But, um, you know, I went back and watched a couple of episodes of Star Trek, uh, that had the holodeck and being able to hold things and pick things up and grab things. Um, you know, I don't know that people want to wear gloves all the time when they deck into the metaverse, but if you were trying to rebuild an engine, And you watched a 3D tutorial and you got the feeling like to me, like that's the dream of having this experience where you could watch and participate in a video on how to repair something and then take all that stuff off and go do it in real life. Uh, That's, that's what I want to be able to do. That's what I want to experience. You know, show me how to, you know, do make a vase in a pottery place and then, with no additional training, let me go there and I should be able to do it like but I think for that to work, you have to have that haptic feedback on gloves or something uh, because your hands you're not going to get that muscle memory by doing it by holding those those uh, little hit uh, hand you know controllers um, and then the last one which kind of ties in all the way back to uh, one of the earlier ones about being globally online, I wrote uh better multitasking. So again, the metaverse right now is, uh, and I say the metaverse, but the the Oculus, my experience with it so far has been when you're doing one app, it's difficult to swap to another app. You have to exit that app and go do something else. But I almost imagine like this little orb floating next to you that would have, uh, you know, almost like a windows or the Mac uh, toolbar or the Windows taskbar at the bottom that shows everything that you have running and that you'd be able to just flip in between those things. Now that may be a physical uh, limitation of the hardware at this point to to run all those things at once. Although my phone seems to do a pretty good job of keeping twenty two things open at all times. So, um, but you know, just be able to. I want to be able to run around with virtual dinosaurs and then if I get an email from work to see that notification and flip over and be able to check that. Uh, I just implied that I would be doing, that I would be playing with virtual dinosaurs during work hours. That's not what I meant, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, to see a phone call pop up while I'm playing a game or something like that, I think that's uh, uh is going to be important. So, wow, that's a lot of demands that I've written for other people to do. So if somebody could, make all that happen, uh, then I will be much more pleased with virtual reality. So, uh, I have seen the benefits of virtual reality in just a few weeks. Uh, not just the educational level, like the watching of the videos, uh, and things like that. Uh, the meditation apps, I think have a, you know, potential to make someone's life better. Um, the education stuff, Uh, you know, I think there's more to it than just the games. Uh, and I think ultimately it will be, it has the potential to be the next type of social media. Um, so more than, you know, Facebook gets a bad rap and, and not, not undeservedly in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, Twitter and Instagram and all those things, but uh you know being able to go in and find a few of your friends and to watch a movie together i think that has potential i think going to a virtual friends pad while he's not there and dropping off an album for him to listen to or a book or something like that i you know i th- i think there's something there so uh will i be interested in all this a year from now or 2 years or 5 years i don't know but I would really like to see it grow into something, uh, you know, to go back to something I said earlier. I started calling BBSs in the early 80s, and and uh, I moved to IRC. And now, of course, today, you know, we have Zoom where we chat and uh, FaceTime and, and Discord and all these different ways. So maybe this is just the next evolution of that. And... Uh, if we can do it in a way where it's not us being marketed to all the time and in a way that uses some of the of the uh, uh potential power for again for education uh, and for experiences like i'm not gonna go to easter island anytime soon but i sure would like to go walk around those statues and look at that like i think that would be neat or or go on a a flight or go walk around the moon. I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of experiences that you can bundle in this thing, uh, that people would never have a chance to do while they were at home. So I think I'm ready for ready player one. Well, that wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord. Leave a message at my podcast hotline at four zero five four eighty six ydkf or come visit me in the metaverse. All right. I don't really have a spot in the metaverse yet, but that would be cool. If you'd like to find out more about supporting my shows, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara for more details. All of my patrons get behind the scenes blog posts, weekly rando Rob videos, access to the Amigos retro gaming discord server and other additional perks. If you want to watch any of my videos, go to youtube.com forward slash Amigos retro gaming, look for the Sprite castle plays, and you can find some of my gaming streams. If you want to watch me game live, Go to twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara and click follow. You'll be notified every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central when I go live and play retro games, usually Commodore 64 or DOS games. So if you want to come participate, come chat, heckle me, whatever you want to do, that's when that happens. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed at com. To hear more podcasts from me like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, Like a Doss, and Multiple Sadness, visit com for links and information about all these shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you know a little bit more about Flack. I'll see you in the metaverse next time. Last but certainly not least, here is a very special shout out to all of my Patreon supporters. For the month of February 2022, this includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restle, Brian Barr, Carrie Clanton, Chris Folds, C Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heeby, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Motolap, Eric Strianese, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nanamaker, Jason Warren's, John Bodekar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Casada, Joshua Eckroth, Louis Dorenfeld, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Holt, Patrick Markey, Rad Max, Rydar, and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossi Zeke Pavsky, Zerfall, and the Mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters: Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vebke, John Morrison. Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Van Drasik, Steve Sharipa, and Vintage Volts.